Hey, thanks for joining another Barrel Proof Baseball podcast. Um, today, I'm really excited because I get to announce a sponsorship. Uh, I get to kind of introduce our guest that we're going to have on today and kind of change the format a little bit. So I'm really excited. Um, starting today, support for the Barrel Proof Baseball podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. Uh, Manscaped is the absolute best in your men's grooming needs. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools, and they obsess over their technology developments to provide you with the very best in men's grooming. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. As an exclusive offer to my listeners, Manscaped is offering 20% off plus free shipping when you use the code BPB at manscaped.com. Manscaped hooked me up with their Perfect Package 3.0 kit, which included their third-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 3.0 includes a ceramic blade to reduce any grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. It has a built-in LED light. Uh, It's waterproof, so it can be used in the shower if need be. Uh, It also included this toner, which smells amazing, and some anti-chafing deodorant, which comes in handy as well. They also threw in uh, this travel bag, which is really nice. Um, as well as some Manscaped boxers. So um, check it out. Get 20% off and free shipping when you use the code BPB at manscaped.com. That is 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code BPB. Uh, you could also join our Patreon. The Patreon is a monthly donation um, which allows listeners to. I guess, subscribe more or less uh, at different values each month. And, you know, it's just kind of to help support the ongoing fees associated with running a podcast. So uh, there's different levels of it that are there. You've got um, different things that you'll get sent. As of right now, we've got Glencairn glasses uh, that will be sent out based on your membership level. Um, I started following some different, different bourbon accounts. They all had these coins. I thought they were cool, so I had them made. Um, this first one was for bourbon, um, and then the second one was for Irish whiskey. So we've got these available um, based on the sponsorship level that you choose on Patreon, um, or if you'd like to order these directly, you can go to uh, you can email me. Email me at barrelproofbaseball at yahoo.com. Those are your uh, kind of your ways right now to help support the channel if you're interested. And uh, yeah, appreciate any support people are willing to do, whether it's through uh, ordering Manscaped or the coins and glasses. Uh, hopefully get some hats coming out soon, but yeah, we'll see what happens. So uh, today, our, for our guest for today's show is Dylan Nishatka. Uh, Dylan is a hitting coach in the Los Angeles Dodgers organization. Uh, we were actually going to work together last year before the cancellation of the season due to COVID-19. This year, Dylan's going to be the hitting coach for uh, the Rancho Cucamonga Quakes in the California League. Uh, Dylan runs a blog, 661hit.com. Uh, he's an outstanding hitting coach. He's doing lessons in Bakersfield, California, uh, and he's you know getting an opportunity to get to know Dylan. Um, he's an incredible dude. He's very bright. He does a really good job. He really cares. He really digs in and tries to educate himself on hitting. And, you know, he, he's really done a nice job of immersing himself in everything that he does. The reason Dylan is on today, not because I would want to just interview people that I like, but um, Dylan has come out with a book. It's the High School Baseball Hitter's Handbook. Now, when you see this on Amazon, it's not going to look like this. It's a different cover, but um, this is the book. 
and it's outstanding. Dylan sent me this copy um, last week or so. It just came out today, March 1st, so that's why we're talking today, and we're going to release this thing today. So I, I've read through this, and I would definitely recommend it. Now, the big thing about this book, Dylan's too humble to admit this or let you know this, but this book is way more comprehensive than I think he would let on, um, let 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 you believe it is. I think he's going to be too humble and say, oh, you know, here's some ideas, here's some things for you to follow. But the the issue is there's so much good content in this that is really difficult to find all in one place. You're going to have you know tidbits here and there that you, here and there that you're going to find on on social media, and you know that's great, but. This is a kind of a one-stop shop for all of the things that you need to know as a high school player going into high school, the, the year or two leading into high school, the time while you're in high school. Um, it, it talks about you know creating a routine, how to properly train. I mean, there's so much content in this that is so valuable. And having it all right here in one place, I think is a really great asset to have access to. So um, I would definitely check this book out. I've read through it. I really enjoy it. Um, there's stuff all the way through recruiting. I mean, there's so much information on here. There's content about talking to your coach, um, showcases, lessons, um, strength training. I mean, everything that I think high school players need to know or at least get exposed to from somebody who's got experience in recruiting at the college level and now coaching in the professional level. So Check this book out. It's on Amazon. It's available today. I'll put the link below in the description. And without further ado, here's Dylan Nishatka. All right, we're here on the Barrel Proof Baseball Podcast with Dylan Nishatka. Dylan, thanks so much for jumping on here with me today. Tony, thanks for having me, man. So uh, first things first, talk about yourself a little bit. Give me a little bit of background on uh, on you, uh, kind of how you got to where you are right now, and uh, just a little bit about your road to getting here. Kind of interesting. Um, yeah, my road, I, I was really a, uh average average player. Um probably was, was, uh, uh, exceeded my ceiling by playing at the four-year college level, started, uh, at the junior college level after high school, uh, got a chance to play at the four-year level at a couple different levels, uh, both the D one and NAIA level. And, uh, and after actually I, I was still playing, uh, got an offer to start coaching at the junior college, Bakersfield college that I had played at. Um, and, uh, so started right away in 2012 hit the ground running there, kind of was given a lot of freedom to uh, try different things, uh, basically put, you know, my spin sort of on, on hitting and uh, did a lot of lessons. As you know, you know, you, you coached at the junior college level. Um, there's a lot that goes into that lifestyle. So did a lot of lessons with younger kids and uh, just kind of kept working. And uh, seven and a half years into doing that, got a call from the Dodgers and uh, and, and here I am. So it, it's been a really interesting road. I, I didn't really plan on, on coaching in pro baseball at any point. Um, just really tried to learn and, and advance what I did and, uh, was really fortunate to have some really great connections, uh, in, uh, the form of Brant Brown, who's, uh, our big league hitting coach and also, uh, Robert Van Skoyok, who's our other big league hitting coach. And, 
uh, those two guys, I think uh, maybe yeah, it definitely put in a good word for me and, and helped me out. And, uh, and, and so going into my second year now uh, with the Dodgers, I guess technically the first year uh, with last year being a wash, but um, yeah, and here we are. So I, I know it's kind of odd because of, you know, COVID shutting down the year, but obviously with the resources that, you know, well, first through spring training and then the resources that, you know, the stuff we have a, the availability to access. Um, what's that transition been like for you in terms of going from junior college into professional baseball? Um, you know, how, how are you feeling making that jump? Because I know a lot of people are making the jump like I did from college baseball into professional baseball. So like, what's that jump been like for you going from junior college into professional baseball? Um, man, that's a great question. There, there's so many different things that, that happen there. So your environment changes a lot with the players. Um, and, uh, also with, with the staff. And then, like you said, the resources available. So the Dodgers are so amazing because we have all these different groups that work really well together. Uh, there's a lot of synergy between, you know, uh, uh, the strength training staff uh, and, and the, the hitting crew and the pitching guys. And it's just so many different people working well together. So that was new. Um, I, I would say that was like one of the biggest differences. Um, the other thing would be, uh, would be like you said, the resources available, and just the people you can you can talk to. Uh, having the the opportunity to talk to like Raul Raul Ibanez and and hear some of his ideas and what he felt like made him good, what he felt like made other hitters good. Having the ability to pick the brains of our hitting department, um, having the ability to to sit in with the hitting department uh, quite a bit. And, and really, I've learned quite a bit from the hitters as well. These guys are, by the time they get to us, they, they have, they have a, a little bit of an idea of their plan. Uh, it works pretty well. We have the chance to take that plan up to the next level and, and just keep adding to them. But they're a great, great resource as well. I think all of that together, yeah, the, the transition is, I thought it was going to be harder than it was. I thought it was going to be more intimidating than it was. But um, just really thankful for the organization and the people around and, and everybody really, uh, helped to make me feel comfortable and, and just try to be the best that I could for, for our guys. That's funny. Cause like you mentioned, you said twice people, and it's funny because people, friends of mine or other people, I always ask like, Hey, you guys, you guys do well, man. You guys do things so well. Like, what do you do? What's your thing? Like, how do you guys do everything so good? Like, I, I mean, obviously I think we do things really well, but we have really, really good people. And I don't, and I think anybody that works with us would agree that the people that we have make that environment and it makes a um, comfortable place for us to be able to learn and share ideas and bounce things off one another. Yeah. And, and you're one of those people, man. So I, I know today we're going to kind of talk about, you know, the book that, that I just had and uh, that just is coming out today actually. And um, yeah, you're one of those people. We, when, when the world shut down, I, I immediately thought, well, we'll be back in two weeks, but mm -hmm. as it became apparent that wasn't going to happen, it really was all of those people that became just this like great crutch. And, and mm -hmm. I hoped I helped somebody out. I, I feel like I, I took more than I gave and I hope I did give like some back because there were so many people that were saying, well, Hey, you know, you might be bored. Here's an article, here's this. And, and we did those, we spent a lot of time together doing some chats really early in the morning and 
uh, sitting in with uh, Cody Royal and Fergus Connolly and uh, just hearing some like outstanding information and uh, but and we talked quite a bit and I think a couple times I threw threw around the idea well you know maybe I'll just write a book and you're like yeah why not and I haven't been around a lot of people that have that I that that mind you know thought process um, I, I think unfortunately and and everybody's probably had a similar experience where you're around people and you say well, what if I wrote a book and and you have people say oh that's crazy or you know, what if I did this? Oh man, that'd be too hard. And, and the environment has really changed and, and shifted in, in such a great way. And like, I, I floated that idea to you and, and here we are, this is so interesting because it's almost like two dreams, yeah. you know, at one time, you know, your dream of your podcast. And, and um, I remember saying, you know, oh, well, maybe I'll just write a book and you're like, yeah, yeah, I think, I think you should. It's like, Good. awesome. <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, yeah, I, I really want. Yeah, we we're going to get into this book because I have the prototype, the uh, the old the old uh, cover before you redid it for uh, for the the go round. But I think we get to kind of that place where like we are, and I, I hate to say comfortable because I don't think we're comfortable, but we are like stuck in that realm of like we do what we do, and that's kind of it. And how am I going to do good within like what I'm doing? So I think getting to that point where we're comfortable enough to say. Like I'm going to step out a little bit and it's going to be challenging or uncomfortable or difficult. Um, you know, you might get some pushback, uh, negativity, whatever it might be, but at the end of the day, like you're an author, like literally an author now, you know? And I think that is such a cool thing to be able to say that you, you know, you had the courage to write a book, put it out there and, you know, let your thoughts be on paper for everybody to see like forever now. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Man. It, it is weird to kind of surreal to think, think about that. Yeah. I'm trying to put a lot of pressure on you. So, <laughs> I, so I want to talk about this book because, you know, I asked about your, like your background, obviously. And I think for all of us in baseball, like the backgrounds that we have, like the experiences that we've had with our coaching, um, whether coaching stops or people we've been around coaches and players, those guys all contribute to like our current thoughts. Um, you know, and then meeting more people and, and changing your environment, I think it always changes your perspective on things. So this is for the title being the high school baseball hitters handbook. You cover a lot of areas in this. And I, I mentioned to you that I said in the introduction, this is a very comprehensive book. And I think probably more so than you set out for it to be. So kind of give me a little bit of background on, you know, why you went in the direction you did with the book and just tell me a little bit about the book to start. So, so the high school baseball hitters handbook kind of was an idea that I started floating around in college. Uh, I, originally, it was going to be the hitters handbook because I had I've always been sort of curious, and I I saw you know guys I played with that you could tell they struggled because of like it was very obvious you know whether it was their approach, their work ethic, uh, their swing you know very obvious to everybody but them, and I felt like they didn't, they, they weren't helped along in that path of like finding how to analyze that for themselves. So I floated that around and I thought about it a lot, just, yeah, I mean, years ago. And as, as I sat down and actually really didn't want to write a book, I, I was writing blog posts. And um, when I came back, uh, when the shutdown happened, I was doing a lot of lessons with younger kids and 
you know, these kids were, I think my first one was 10, you know, and then I had a 12 year old and 13 and 14. And through conversations, my, my, my blog post ideas kind of just came. I, I never sat down and wrote a list out of things that, oh, you know what, these things are really important for hitters. It, it was more just organic conversations that got me thinking. And so I started doing these blog posts and I was doing more of them and doing more of them. And, and I started thinking, man, these are really trending a direction. These are going the direction of like for a high school player. Um, and these would be great ideas. So I, I guess long story short on the book is I set out to make it something that was uh, very like a tactical type of guide, you know, and as I started writing it, it became sort of like a mesh between uh, Grit, right, by Carolyn Dweck, uh, uh, I believe uh, author of Grit. Grit. Angela, Angela Duckworth. Angela Duckworth, man. Um, yeah, Carol Dweck is a, a what, mindset, I think. Mm. Um, Angela Duckworth, yeah, there's Grit. Uh, there is um, maybe a mesh of Mind Gym, which was a, a great book I read in high school. Uh, some, some of the baseball, great baseball mental books. Um, but it, it became more not only with the actual performance piece, but more of uh, the, hab the habitual piece. What kind of habits do I need uh, to become good? And, and I wanted to make that in uh, a digestible form, you know, for a high school age player and, and also for parents, uh, for parents who might be thinking, well, what, is my, what does my son need to do to be good? And uh, in, in working with a lot of players, unfortunately, I know sometimes the, the mindset is, well, if my son does this lesson with this person, they're going to be good tomorrow. And, um, and, and you and I both know it, it takes years and years. And uh, there are players, uh, I just yesterday was watching our, our spring training game. Zach McKinstry uh, is, is in a big league spring training game, has a couple great at-bats, 33rd round draft pick. Of course, he had some tools just to get him there, but there are players in similar shoes, comparatively speaking, where maybe at one point uh, they weren't thought of as being great or they weren't great compared to their competition. But after years and years of, of work, they did become you know, great players. And so that's, I guess, uh, the long version of, of how I kind of came about this. I think the, um, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing, I think, for high school players and parents. And I think this is such a perfect like age bracket and demographic to hit because for high school hitters, I think they get caught up in either the numbers, like their output, just purely like what's my batting average or whatever. And they try to use those to compare themselves to other hitters. Whereas college coaches, scouts, they're trying to look at them and figure out what tools they have that will set them up for success later on down the road. So I think playing that or being aware of that long-term you know, road that you're going to be on as a hitter, whether it's growth as a hitter, understanding failure, dealing with failure, you know, understanding that, like you said, there's not a quick fix. Like you might put a bandaid on things, but ultimately like it's a, it's a long process. So I think there's a lot of things in here that are really good for, for players and parents to hear, just to understand that that long-term game has to be played. And it's not just about numbers and success right away, because you've got a long time for this stuff to play out, like probably longer than they think looking at it and in, in terms of a high school career. Yeah, absolutely. What, I mean, I, I tried to kind of do the math on it and I think I mentioned it. Uh, I don't know which chapter it's in. It's one of the early chapters, but you have about 1200 days in high school, 
And, uh, you know, that alone is a really long time. 1,200 days, uh, if you try to learn any new skill and you do that every day, you're going to be exceptional with that skill in 1,200 days. Um, and, yeah, and you, and you hit on it, you know, looking at the batting average or even looking at being good in training. And I think that's another trap. I actually think that's the biggest trap right now that we are, are starting to, uh, to reinforce. And it's really important that players have a process and that they stay process oriented to lead to outcomes. But the only thing that matters is the outcome. So if you're hitting every ball 105 miles per hour in your training, but you get in the game and you stink, then you have to understand your process is flawed. You know, your process is not leading you to an outcome. Um, so you have to look at that and, and analyze that and, and reinvent your process. And, uh, and, I, and I do see a lot of that with, with uh, the feedback we're getting. It, and the, the feedback is great. You know, we, Tony, you know, we got everything under the sun to measure, um, measure exit velocity and, and launch angle and how the body's moving. We have everything available and it still comes down to the basics of what did this hitter do at seven? And so, uh, because if he didn't do what he's looking to do, which is get hits at seven, then something is, something is, is off, you know, or, or he's building to get more hits at seven and that should be understood too. But, simply dominating practice doesn't mean you've become a dominant player. And so hopefully I hit on that as well. Building off of what you just said about, you know, exit below or, you know, launch angle or the tools that we have access to that, you know, more places, more schools and, and younger ages are starting to have access to some of these things, especially in like private cage settings, you know, that feedback that kids are getting, how much do you feel they need to be, taking stock in those numbers that they're getting the output from those numbers um, in their training sessions? Like, is that something that you think young kids should be paying attention to or being aware of? Or do you think that's something that needs to be later on, you know, in high school, past high school, going into college pro ball, you know, where, where does that need to lie right now? You think? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's one of those uh, really tough ones. Maybe like an, it depends answer. It depends on the player, what they've done. Uh, what they're planning on doing, the level they're at. Uh, but there, it has a place, right? So uh, we've, we've really turned the page from uh, swing down, you know, hit the ball on the ground. And we've really turned the page into a new direction, which is what type of hits help your team win most, right? And the home run is by far the most valuable, most valuable hit you can have. Um, but I... I think if players have a grasp of this, this is a line drive that is probably going to be successful, right? Um, it has the right launch angle. I think launch angle over exit velocity, number one, should be understood, right? Like there's uh, between 10 and 20 degrees. This is not in the book, so we're kind of going off, off script a little bit. But between 10 and 20 degrees in the big leagues, like those balls land for hits a very, very high percentage of time. It's like... I think it's like a, a 700 batting average between 10 and 20. And that's regardless of exit velocity. So, so it, it kind of goes the angle you hit it at, which coaches have been saying forever, hit line drives. Um, and so the measuring devices give you that feedback. They give you the, what angle am I hitting it at? It's really up to the coach 
once once they feel like that baseline has been established to the player to then up the difficulty and uh, make make the environment so difficult that uh, they're going to fail a lot, but they're also still striving for that goal of like, how am I trying to hit it? So I, I do think I do think it all has a purpose uh, for for different people, but there are players who they don't need to know that they just hit it 102 uh, because that's part of their problem. Mm-hmm. There are also players who need to know, hey, I just hit that one 102 with that little effort, you know, um, but max swings, you know, maxing out every swing and looking to set um, like your long drive, right? Like uh, that's, that's where I think we maybe have gone a little sideways as we're looking at long drive uh, video and saying, well, look how this works. You know, these guys do it right and let's apply it to baseball. And baseball is more like, you know, you're trying to win the championship over, uh, what is it, 72 holes, right? So it's not just how far you hit it because the long drive champions, they don't win PGA Tour events. They hit the ball far. Uh, but they also hit it sideways. And there's a reason in the long drive, they get a bunch of different swings to try to hit their furthest ball. In baseball, just kind of like like golf, right? We want to hit it far, but we want to hit it straight. Like we want to hit it a direction that's going to lead to something good. Uh, so yeah, I, I think there's definitely, you know this, there's definitely a place for it. Um, I know some colleges like to see certain exit velocity numbers, many I think would rather just see that somebody has the acceptable amount of bat speed to hit velocity pitching. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and we'll see how this will play out over the next couple of years. I think there's a lot of really good minds that are also discussing this and saying, you know, hey, listen, maybe we need to focus more on your game output, but use the training information to help you uh, to get there. That's where I think, yeah, that that's, I think, one of the biggest aspects that you hit on so many different areas in this book. Sorry for going off topic on that. I was just curious in your thoughts of it, but you know, you hit on so many different topics about basically being a good player, being a well-rounded player. You talk about being a teammate, talk about understanding what the coach is looking at, all those types of things. And I guess my curiosity off of that was based on, you know, the scouting services, the things that are out right now where kids are, are using their raw data as in their exit velocity off a T to try and you know, quantify that number as making them a good hitter. And, you know, I've had a few discussions about that. And yes, there is a baseline. I think that guys should try to strive for, but having the ability to hit the ball 102 off the tee, if you're winding yourself up in a circle and spinning around as fast as possible, doesn't mean that's going to translate into a game. So I I think high school hitters, especially trying to understand like that correlation and, and it doesn't always justify the fact that that number means you're a um able hitter that you can go compete at a high level that's all yeah completely agree when you talk about in here you talk about like getting into a routine talk about the process you know how have you seen that like the importance of that play out and not having the focus on that process and the routine like how have you seen that be detrimental to guys yeah if you don't have a routine uh, you're always writing from a clean slate. And the, the biggest thing with uh, somebody really focused on their development is you want to open the book back up and you want to write from, you want to start after the last sentence, right? And maybe maybe you wrote, you know, the last paragraph 
maybe it was a maybe it wasn't a good paragraph. You know, you had a bunch of spelling mistakes. Uh, maybe you wrote about a character that was going the wrong direction. But you can look at that and say, okay, this guy, you know what? I'm writing this book, and I really want the the protagonist to win, and he's getting his butt kicked in the last in the last section. Let's go ahead and start to to turn the tables a little bit. But you have to use what happened yesterday, uh, today, and then you have to use what happened today, tomorrow. So the only way you can do that is is through a routine. And the routines I've seen players who do really well uh, and people who do really well with very specific meticulous routines. Um, you know, Wade Boggs, what was his thing? Uh, fried chicken? Yeah, so I don't know if that's yeah. very specific, but, but there are players who, who eat the same things, take the same amount of steps, you know, and it, and it borders on kind of neurotic, you know, and, and I think guys who, who stray that, you know, to that uh, meticulous of an amount, they can get thrown off by external conditions. Uh, so you also have to kind of have a backup routine, like, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show up at this time. I'm going to eat this. I'm going to do this stretch. Uh, I'm going to throw this amount of balls, take this amount of swings. But if uh, we've got rain, if we've got lightning and I'm going to have something different, here's my, my parachute routine. You know, here's the one when, when things didn't go so well and I had to pull the eject button on the, on the, uh, the routine, here's what I can do. So I think, I, and I'm not laying out a specific routine. I have a couple of sample routines, uh, routines of like some swings to, you know, how, how to get yourself loose before you're hitting, uh, some routines on lifting. And that's what uh, strength training is really a, a routine-based activity. Um, if you think of something like, uh, and I, I'm a proponent of it, I really like CrossFit, uh, but you, you get in the gym for CrossFit and you have no idea what the workout is. Uh, you, you, you might get in there sometimes and you're, you're going, hey, wait a minute, I, I can't do this today. My body is in a bad place. So you don't want to be there as a baseball player, right? And, and as a baseball player, you can get into, uh, you can get kind of stuck in a trap of like, maybe just even playing catch, Tony. You go out to play catch and you're throwing, your arm feels great. I mean, it feels amazing. So you're like, you know what? I'm going to turn it loose a little bit. I'm going to see how far I can long toss today. And instead of doing maybe your six to eight long toss throws, you're throwing 30 of them, you know, and it's just like maxing out. You're trying to throw the ball over the foul pole and, you know, you're having some fun because the arm's really feeling good. Well, if, if you didn't plan for pitching tomorrow and you left yourself sore, you know, now you're in trouble. And uh, the, the analogy I sort of use or the, uh, the scenario I use is when you warm up before game one of like a double header or, you, went, you warm up for uh, before a game and you don't have a regulated amount of throws. Say you're in that scenario of arms feeling great. You're just turning it loose and ripping it. And then there's a rain out or a rain delay and you have to come back later and, and rewarm up. Well, if I throw just uh, some, some amount that, help, that I feel good with uh, and say it was a hundred throws and I go out to warm up the second time, I, I've got to be conscious of like, you know, maybe I should only take about 15, you know, uh, where, where if you don't keep track of your routine, you could just blow yourself up. And then, yeah. and then the other side of it is, is you could do too little, right? You, you, could, uh, you could hit on uh, or lift on Monday and, and then on Tuesday think, you know what, I'm kind of a little bit tired, you know, take another, take an easy one, you know, and then Wednesday you go out there, I'm a little bit tired, I'll take an easy one. 
and, and then you've just spent a whole week taking easy days. So I think a routine is just a great baseline. Uh, you can have a routine on so many things you do. I have a routine on game day in the mornings. Um, and, you know, uh, as a coach, I do. I have a, a routine as I, as I get to the field and sort of go through a checklist of things. Uh, for players, you know, routines on deck. Uh, what are you going to do each time? And what it also allows you to do is if, if it's not going great, if something's kind of off, you can tweak the routine a little bit and, and help yourself out. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's great. Sorry, I choked. Um, I think that's I think that's a great point. I think kids probably don't hear that at an early enough age, um, and I also think that there are instances, especially early on, that kids kind of confuse routine with superstition. And you know, having a routine to prepare yourself is obviously huge. And you know, you see with our players, I mean, that routine is somewhat built in with their you know, their prep work and getting ready to go out on the field and perform and the days are lifting. And, um, you know, then they have their routine that they do. And I think that's huge. And, you know, the guys are really focused on accomplishing their routine and it's the whole, like, make your bed thing. Like you've accomplished something. That's already one thing that you've done. You've accomplished it. You've been successful at it. And now it's moving on to the next thing. So I think there's a lot of wins in, um, having that routine, setting it and accomplishing it. Sure. I think one of the big things that you touch on in this is, what is my coach looking for? And I think that is something that I think it's huge for one. I think partially because kids that are in high school or kids going into high school don't really know like what a coach is looking for. And then once they're there, you know, you're going to get those, those parents that are unhappy with their kids playing time, the kid that's unhappy with their playing time or what their role is on the team um, based on, you know, maybe what year they are in school or how they perceive the other person as, um, that's playing ahead of them that they're performing. And then also like, what is the coach looking for at the next level? Like in the recruiting process, can you talk a little bit about, you know, why that's important and to, to be aware of, and like maybe what some of those things are. Sure. I'll, I'll tell you the, the, this, this section of the book where I'm talking about expectations of your coach really came from my time at Bakersfield College. We had a pitcher, uh, not going to say the year or anything, but we had a pitcher who was our ace. I mean, just, he was a stud, you know, went out there, gave us, gave us six, seven, eight competitive innings every time out. Um, two pitch guy, three pitch on a great night, and really was just like a dream to have. Um, that pitcher was cut from his varsity, uh, varsity, I want to say junior year. Yes, junior year. And when we asked the player, why did you get cut? He got cut during conditioning and he was late to conditioning. And uh, I don't know what exactly it was. Didn't have the right stuff on or whatever. The coach didn't even give him a chance to watch him throw and he was cut from the team. And so as a player, the number one most important thing as a baseball player is that you play baseball. Right. Uh, I mean, not that that's the most important thing in life, but if you say you're a baseball player, you, you have to make the team and then you have to like you want to get off of the bench and play. And so your coach is going to look for a few things. Right. Uh, number one, he's going to look for like, does this guy even know where he is? Does he know he's on a baseball field? And a lot of kids show up and they, they like don't have the right gear, like show up with the right gear. If you don't have it, do a little bit of planning, talk to some other teammates. They can loan you some shoes, socks, a belt, uh, a hat. Start with dressing like uh, a professional who would be on the field on game day. Start there. Now your coach might say, hey, listen guys, you know, you, I'm a little more flexible. You don't have to wear this. You don't have to wear that. And you can always scale back. 
but start with at least dressing the part. It's not faking it at all. You're not, you're not becoming a person you're not by doing that. Um, the, uh, I'm, I have a book here, <laughs> just kind of taking uh, a look. So yeah, I'm flipping through it right uh, now too. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I was, we were talking earlier and I, I wrote the book. I, I did the audio book for it, uh, just kind of in revision and stuff. I read it several times and then it's been about almost a month and I haven't, I haven't picked it up because uh, you read it enough times. And, um, but now I've kind of gotten to the section. So the other, the other portions in there, uh, feedback, right? So just learning how to approach feedback from your coach. Your coach wants to see that you can handle feedback and that um, he can help you. Right. So, uh, again, start with a baseline of, you know, understanding eye contact, uh, trying to apply what the coach says. And then if it doesn't work, communicate, have that have that conversation with the coach and they'll really appreciate that. Um, understanding that your coach wants to win. They're not perfect. Um, some coaches don't talk to players as much as you might like. That doesn't mean they don't like players. It just means that's that's their style. Uh, some coaches have a very outgoing style. Uh, they're very loud, talk a lot. You know, I, I think you could call them high energy guys. Uh, but some coaches, some great coaches are very mild mannered and they're going to wait for a player to approach them. And, and it doesn't have anything to do with liking or disliking the player. It's just simply that's more of their personality. Um, and then and then at the end, uh, you know, I kind of talked about uh, some of the other facets, like uh, some coaches don't want to hear from players. And, and uh, we've all had those coaches that the uh, do as I do and do not talk type of guys. And, and so what, you know, uh, you're going to have a bunch of different coaches in life. You're going to have a bunch of different relationships. You're going to have a bunch of different bosses. And uh, some of these people, they, they tick differently. And, and again, it doesn't make the coach a bad person that he doesn't want to hear from you. It's just, again, his, it's more his style. Um, read the room before going in, which is really a, just a quick section on, on understanding like the, the temperature, you know, and if, if your coach is having a bad day for whatever reason, uh, yeah. coaches have a lot on their plate. Yeah. They, they have a lot on their plate. Uh, the AD might have come down and yelled at them. Uh, the grounds crew might have left the sprinklers on all night. Um, he he might have, you know, he might be dealing with issues at home with his kids or wife or family, you know, whatever it is. If your coach is in a bad mood, understand that. And and don't, I, I would say, act accordingly on that. And help out your teammates. Like, hey, hey, listen, you know, calm down. I don't think coach is in a great mood today. Um, and if you have a great relationship with the coach, you can, you can actually help that, help that coach out and maybe crack a joke and, and uh, coaches are people too. So I think that the main thing with this section is understanding, and it's kind of humanizing the coach for the player a little bit um, rather than feeling like uh, the coach is this just nasty dictator person. Cause they're really not. Um, they go home and you and I do the same thing. If a player, if something's going wrong, you know, we, we, it keeps us up at night. And, and we sit there and think, you know, how can we help Johnny out? How can we help, you know, we're scratching our head, you know, this isn't working, we need to help him. And then, you know, you go back to practice and you try. And, and so for players, when you have that understanding, it can really help you out. And, and then the very last section is uh, talking about praise from the coach and, and praise is great, but it's temporary. You're going to get praised by your coach uh, sometimes, hopefully when you're doing a good job. Uh, but that praise is for yesterday. 
and that praise is for the minute before. So it doesn't, it doesn't continue into today or tomorrow. You know, it's just telling you it's some feedback that like, hey, you're on the right path. Um, and the path you're on is difficult. I get that, but keep it up. Um, so that's kind of that, that section. One of the, to me, one of the most important ones that you put, and there's a lot. I think the whole book is important because I think one of the things it does is it puts, I think there's a lot of information available to guys, but I think this is a really nice um, place to have all of this information in one book. I think it's great. But I think one of the most important things in this is in chapter 12, you said, reflect on your performance. And you talk about not looking at it from an emotional perspective and being truthful with yourself, you know, being able to analyze what actually happened, not, you know, I got screwed by the umpire or blaming it on something or, you know, eliminating that emotional response. I think that's one of the hardest things for players to do is to remove the external like blame game from, from anything or an excuse for why they didn't perform. And, you know, like, it's okay to go, I wasn't very good today. Like that wasn't my best performance. Maybe you get to the root of it. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that chapter in itself was so big because of guys overall, a lot of people have a difficult time being honest with themselves and analyzing their performance in a real way uh, and not making it emotional and then just being able to stick to the facts. Yeah. When, and one of the prior sections of the book talks about staying in the moment and when you're in the moment, be in the moment, right? So fastball strike one, I didn't swing at it. It was a great pitch to hit. Don't beat yourself up. Mm -hmm. Right. Or breaking ball in the dirt strike one. Don't beat yourself up. You just keep playing when you're in the moment, be in the moment. If you're going to play that way, reflection is a must. And when you get done, there are a couple of types of reflection. And actually, this is one of my favorite sections of the book as well, Tony. Uh, I included a, a daily reflection. So for those of you look, watching, there's a little daily reflection section. Uh, and then behind that is a, a little hitting journal idea. And so uh, on both of those, I think you, you can reflect right after the at-bat. It, it's not an emotional thing. Some of the categories I included in the hitting journal um, you know, the pitcher's name. And then this is a Paul Goldschmidt. I stole that, stole this from him. Did I swing at the best pitch in the at-bat? Yes or no. And from a simple process and like analysis, if you keep swinging at the best pitch in the at-bat, you're going to keep giving yourself good chances to hit. But if you consistently take the pitch or, or whatever, uh, it's going to hurt you. Fastball notes, off-speed notes. What did he start me with? What did the at-bat end with? Uh, and then the result. And so it's a, hopefully a non-emotional way to quickly analyze what you've done. Because uh, speaking from personal experience, sometimes you wait to get home from the game to, to analyze it. And you don't remember what the second pitch was that you flew out on in the third inning. You know, um, you're thinking, well, shoot, was that a changeup or a slider? Well, if with the hitting journal, you do it right away. You don't think about it. Sometimes you might, you might fall into... Uh, something, right? You might fall into a pitch tip. You might fall into um, the pitcher is doing the same thing with every guy. You might fall into uh, every time there's a runner on second base, he does this. And having that reflection, um, you, you know, gives you that idea. Um, so, another, and in my time when, with Brant Brown, when I was younger, uh, he used to talk about this and uh, reflecting, you know, after 
after the game and also being realistic. Like you said, sometimes things aren't going your way, but it's actually not a bad thing, right? So some, day, some days you aren't going to have it, especially if you're doing what you should be doing as like a high school player and you're lifting and you're throwing aggressively and you're running aggressively. There are days you're going to show up to the yard and it's like your body is going to feel like trash. You know, you're going to play through some soreness because your workout yesterday was hard. Um, and Brownie told me this when I was about 16, he said, you know, Hey, some days you're just going to, you're just going to try your best to make contact. And, and some days it's not going to go well. And I said, well, I remember asking him like, well, but you were, you played the major leagues, you know, surely you didn't do that then. He said, listen, like that, that season is 162 games long. You can't just take the whole season off of lifting. So you show up sometimes in the big leagues and you feel the same way. You feel like your body is just in a bad place. Uh, and so un, when you have that reflection piece at the end of the day, sometimes you can say, you know what, kind of proud of myself for putting the effort that I did in. And uh, because it was a day where the chips were stacked against me. Yeah. What did you find in writing the book that you um, would think would be the, the most important, like valuable piece of this, like what's, is there some sort of a misconception that you would say is out there that you think would be helpful for kids to read this book um, to hopefully clarify that misconception? Cause I, there's a lot out there. And I think there's a lot of things that are taken in different ways and not that it's right or wrong. Cause everybody's trying to navigate this thing, like whether it's getting into it, getting onto the high school team or moving forward or, you know, getting a spot on the team where you're going to play more. Um, but is there any, any sort of like misconception that you think is going to be really easy to clear up through your book? Hmm. The one I'm drawn to is, is chapter eight and, and the, the title says it games are overrated <laughs> because in this one. So I'm, I have these, uh, these, these uh, hitting clients, right. And, and they're most of them, like I said, a lot of them are really young which I'm really thankful for. They're, they're some of the most fun to work with from a hitting side. And, uh, but they're playing these inexorable, just amazing, amazingly crazy amount of games. Uh, they're going out and they're playing two double headers Saturday, Sunday, or they're playing, there was a, a team uh, around here that played four games in a day. And uh, I'm just thinking that's not fun for baseball. You know, I don't, I would have had so much baby powder, uh, you know, puffing out of my pants by the, oh, end, of, by the end of game four i would have looked like a, a walking bag of flour you know yep. like that's just not fun the gold bond galore <laughs> so so yeah games are overrated and the, and the reason i say this tony is that uh and i mentioned it several times there it's an inefficient way to train and training is all about efficiency right so what can i get done with this amount of time baseball is the one sport because there's no clock on baseball. Your first inning could take five minutes or it could take, theoretically, it could take forever. It could never end, you know, because you've got to get three outs to in that inning. And because of that, I think baseball sometimes falls into, uh, uh, we'll just sort of, you know, we'll be there for three hours and we'll just kind of get it sorted out. Um, no, like, take care of your three hours, you know, get, get the right amount, get the ground balls, get the fly balls, uh, take the right amount of throws, play the right amount of catch, hit the right amount of pitches. All of those things should be important and it should be important to stay on top of um, how efficient your training is and, and games in a game, you're going to get 
uh, I was talking to a 12U player and his parent uh, last week and he played a tournament. He got uh, three at-bats in uh, the three games. And because he batted, he batted 11 or something, you know, mm-hmm. he batted 11th. His team got run ruled in two of the games in the third game, just time got him, you know? So, so he got three at bats and they traveled uh, to Arizona from California. So the trip cost a couple thousand dollars to get three at bats and take that couple thousand dollars. My goodness, put that into a cage if you can, or, or put it into uh, a pop-up net and a tee and, and get your work in that way. Put it into some dumbbells, put it into some weights and make, make yourself better uh, rather than wasting time. Um, so that's the, that's the one that for me, I feel so strongly about it. I think playing games is important because you're practicing to be better in games. But if you're playing seven days a week and doing light training, you're really hurting yourself. Uh, you yeah. should be training I think I've heard two times as much as you play. And I would say at least, I would say for youth, uh, for a 13, 14 year old, play one day a week, train hard six days a week. Uh, You're going to get so much better. I think the the model in general, obviously we're not going to solve the problems right here, but I think the model in general is skewed because of that exact reason. You know, kids are spending more time playing games, getting three at bats in a weekend, or even if you get 12 at bats or 15 at bats, like you're still, that's only, 15 at bats. How much work are you actually putting in? And then it's like the full circle. Like, are you able to deal with failure? If you have a bad first three at bats or your next 12 at bats already down the drain. So I think there's so much more to be, um, be to, there's so much more to be learned simply by training the right way and understanding that like when you go out to play, use that as like a gauge to see where you're at on how your work has been going and there's nothing that's going to guarantee success. Like just because you worked throughout the week doesn't mean you're going to be successful in the game. And just because you didn't work and you are successful doesn't mean that that's the key. Like doesn't mean don't take batting practice ever because you didn't hit this week and you had eight knocks. Like those things don't necessarily correlate to, to success or even long-term sustained success. So I think that you're right. Like the focus on training needs to be amplified a little bit more than it is, I think, currently just the way the system is. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, I know there's a lot of people and organizations that make money off of uh, telling, telling youth parents, they need to play games or they need to need to get exposure. Um, You know, and sure. Like if, if you do want to play at the next level, you do need to, you need some exposure. You have to play in something. I get that. But this idea that we're just going to play as many showcases or tournaments as possible and that's how we're going to we're going to get this thing taken care of is, is really flawed because if you play in the same area consistently you're going to get the same colleges and so they're going to see when you really stink and if you do have a weekend where you where you have a a, a good weekend they're going to also have logged that you've maybe swung and missed 70% of the pitches you swung at and not be able they're not going to be able to pull the trigger on you so i i would say train in the shadows right so that you can shine on the spotlight so it, it's funny you say that about the coaches seeing you because I remember vividly going and doing camps and there was a I'm maybe like a five or six week period where I was between Dallas, Houston, San Antonio. Uh, I mean, I, I think I was in guys like four different cities in in Texas in like a six week period. And we kept seeing the same kids and you're going, man, like 
I saw you at that one showcase that you spent $600 to come to and you didn't perform there. And then the next weekend you're 200 miles away and you spent another $500 to be there and, and you didn't perform there. And so like, like you're not doing anything from week to week to get better, to put yourself in a position to, to get recruited, like pump the brakes on all these things and like, just allow it to take place and happen for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now the kids go to these, uh, they go to tournaments and showcases and uh, how old was the last one? I saw? Oh, it was a 12 year player. He went to a showcase uh, and then his dad showed me the write-up on him, you know, like loose hands, body works. And it's like, man, this is, this is just like the copy and paste write-up for every mm -hmm. kid, you know, like athletic stance, loose hands, uh, use, you know, use the middle of the field. Well, it's like, what did that, like, it's an inconvenient truth that, you know, and, and that I've sort of been exposed to here too, where uh, it's an inconvenient truth that those, I don't know, spotlight moments aren't really like what it's about, right? Mm -hmm. And again, that's the dichotomy of this is that's really all they're about, but they're, they're also, that's, that's not what they're about at all. The training is what will get you there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then we talked earlier and it kind of, it just kind of keeps coming full circle because we trained, talked earlier about not just being good at training. Um, so, so there's a, there's just an understanding that you're trying to train better for games but uh, you don't want to get lost in the training. You don't want to get lost in just succeeding there. And then you also don't want to get lost in just continuing to play games all the time. Um, somebody was asking about the minor league season and schedule and asked if, if we practice, you know, on the minor league side and like, like, yeah, yeah, we practice. Like, how do you practice? And, and there's a team fundamental, there's early work, there's batting practice. There are guys who are going to show up every day early and fix one specific piece of their swing every day. Well, they're going to do that for 150 days, you know, and you're, if you're 14 and you, you only worked at your swing in your one lesson a week, you know, for maybe six or eight months that you're doing it, or maybe you're doing it all year, but you're doing it for one hour a week, which is what 50, how many weeks in there are there in a year, Tony? 52. There it is. So 52 hours a week, you got intentional with your work and, and you're wondering why you're not the caliber player you think you should be. Well, the minor leaguer, he's going to do an hour of intentional work a day every season. You know, he, he's going to do 160 hours a year, uh, plus all he did in the offseason. And then mm -hmm. he might even do some extra stuff. And um, so I think with this book, because my experience with uh, the amateur players is so fresh and I'm still with amateur players a lot. That was where it was so motivating to write this um, because I, I've seen some of these guys, I, I had videos, I was getting videos from a bedroom um, with, you know, one little thing of the swing. Hey, is it this, you know, and I'd send back, no, it's not that try this mm -hmm. or do this, or I'm drawing, you know, lines on a video and they're coming back and forth for hours. I mean, for hours. And then there's, uh, there are players who are just going to play a million tournaments and they're never going to take that time to do that. So they've taken the same swing for years and years and years. And it really isn't performing at the level that they, they want it to. I think that's such a huge takeaway. I mean, just in general. And again, you give lessons. I give lessons. I like doing lessons. But like that one hour a week is not, that doesn't qualify as like really putting in the work and grinding. I mean, there's so much more that needs to go into it. And that's a part of it. But like you said, there's guys that are going to go out there for an hour and take ground balls, but 
but they're not just mindlessly taking ground balls. They're taking ground balls to work on a specific move within their fielding technique or a double play turn or whatever it might be. And, and that training needs to be really intentional if your goals are, are set lofty enough. And if not, like they're probably either not lofty enough or you're not just, you're just not working hard enough to attain those things. Cause getting there is really, it's difficult. I mean, it's not easy. Most guys don't get there. And I think there's so many takeaways out of the book that guys can read and understand, like at least get clarification that it takes more than just showing up to practice. Like if you're just practicing, that's not enough. You're not doing enough. And if you're just practicing and doing a one hour lesson a week, like that's just not enough. doesn't mean you have to go spend a bunch of money and pay somebody to flip you balls and, and tell you it's good or not good, but that's a part of it. And then the other part is like, what does that intentional work outside of just your practice and outside of that lesson? Like, what does that entail? And is that what it's going to take to get you to where you want to go? Yeah. You're, you hit the nail on the head. Now I, the only like segue on that, again, maybe that I, I'm stealing from Jocko. I really like Jocko. So the dichotomy of baseball here, mm -hmm. dichotomy of work and training is all of this doesn't sound fun. This sounds like baseball stinks and I don't want to play it. Oh, it's work. I got to think, I got to work hard. I got to do this. It's work. It's work. Tony, you know this and I know this now, and it, we didn't always know this, but the more you work at it, the more fun it becomes. Mm -hmm. And the more you actually fall in love with the game and mm -hmm. want to do it more. And, and the feedback loop just becomes this amazingly uh, refreshing and uh, fulfilling thing. And, and when the players start getting intentional with things, when, when people get intentional with things and they, they start seeing, oh, wow, you know, I couldn't do this before and I'm getting better. I, I've seen it. I've been working quite a bit with Spanish um, and, and I've had, man, I've had full on conversations with people speaking Spanish and I leave that and I go, holy smokes, like this, I, I was struggling to say two words oh. and now that just happened. And so what do I do? Well, guess what? Tomorrow when I get in my car, I want to pull up that Spanish lesson and, and get after it again. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with baseball, right? You're, you're, you're taking your swings. You're thinking, man, I'm working on this little tiny piece of my swing. What am I doing? You know, and you're working on it and you're working on it. And then you play your game and, and then you look at your video or something. You go, hey, there's that little piece. That's what I've been working on. Awesome. Well, guess what? On Monday, you're doing the, the karate kid kick up out of bed. And you're like, I'm going to go to the, I'm going to go work on that again. That was cool. Mm -hmm. And I think the minor leaguers and, and the professional players that we're having the chance to, to work with, um, a, most of those guys have that already. They, they have that sense of fulfillment that they're getting from things. And the earlier you can get it as a high school player, the, the faster you're on track to just developing this, I don't know, but love, I guess, this passion for the game. Well, I think it's incredibly valuable for, for everybody, players, coaches, parents. Um, you know, I plugged it on, on Twitter. I'll definitely get it out again, but I'm going to make you do like a self-promotion. So like, what is your, what is your plug? Like what, what is your plug for the book? Why do players, coaches, parents need this book? Just sum yeah, it up. So, okay. One more time. Cause we did update the cover. I'm yeah, sorry. I, I, sent, I, I sent you the, the OG version. Um, <laughs> This book, the, the message in this book, in my opinion, is a, is a lifetime message. It's a message that we would deliver on a daily basis to college players and that we, that we as professional coaches are still delivering to players. It's a lifetime message of improvement. 
It's a lifetime message of intentionality. It's something that's digestible for the high school player. Uh, it's a it's it's 137 pages, or I, I actually I think it's 124 pages or something like that. Like it's not something that you're going to pick up. Like it's not Harry Potter. It's not 800 pages. It is digestible. It has content that is built for long-term success in much more than baseball, right? This is going to help you with your relationships with your teammates, with your friends, with your parents, with your coach, with your girlfriend. Uh, it's going to help you uh, to, to decipher like what's important for me in life. You know, what makes me happy, what makes me tick. Uh, and I think, it, I think it's a message uh, that can help. I, I think it's a message that can help everybody. If you have an idea of uh, oh, maybe I already have a routine. Well, well, you might have a routine, but there's also this, this message on reflection, you know, and what if, what if, oh, I already reflect on things. Well, maybe you don't know much about college recruiting. And there's a section on college recruiting on the back end of this book that I think can dispel some myths. So I think the book scales for everybody. Um, I think a lot of the message in this book actually scales for the college player. Uh, maybe someday I'll have to write the, the, the college uh, baseball hitters handbook. And, and I, I might just include some of the same message from a lot of the chapters. But yeah, I, I think this can be useful. I wouldn't talk about it if I didn't. I, I'm not that guy. Uh, I'm just not the guy to talk about what I've got going on. But I wrote the book. I'm so happy at how it came out. I think it can help your players. I think it can help uh, any any um, parent as well that's in the situation. And um, and I hope you do read it. Uh, I, I would send it out to you for free because I feel like it's so important uh, to read this. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think people need to read it. I think there's valuable information. I would say don't send it out for free. People buy it. <laughs> buy it on Amazon. It comes out today. Um, help them out. And a lot, a lot of work in, went into this book. So Congrats to you for, uh, for writing this and getting it out and, and having the courage to do it. Cause that's not easy to do. So that's awesome, man. Stoked for you. Thanks buddy. Yeah. And like I said, thank you again for actually, uh, kind of, uh, putting that bug in my ear, like just go <laughs> ahead and do it. And, uh, and the audio book should be, you, you've got the paper and the Kindle versions that are on Amazon The audiobook. Uh, I've submitted that through acx.com, which is Amazon's, uh, go-to like for audible. And it's just pending audio review. I submitted that uh, early to mid February. Um, they said their timetable is somewhere in the 30 day range. So we're, we're hopefully getting that out soon uh, for those who, who like the audio books. I know I've got some friends. I'm actually a big audio booker myself. And uh, yeah, so it's rolling and, and really happy to have it out and super psyched to, <laughs> to be on the podcast with you on the day of the release. It's uh, pretty awesome. Yeah, I got to get this thing out there, man. I, I, do we need to touch on our other our other favorite topic that needs to uh, needs to be addressed? Are you talking about uh, whiskey? Yeah, I am. Let's I let's, like, let's hear. I was it. I was enjoying mine, and it's empty. I need something else. Hang on. God, yeah, Breckenridge. Oh man. Because yeah, I mean, I figured while you were talking about it, I should you know, but we, we're here and we have our uh, we have our whiskey. Absolutely. So yeah. You're going. You're going. Well, let's talk about what you've got. Go for it. Okay. Well, there's a story to this, Tony. And yes. so I thought it was fitting. And uh, so the first whiskey that I ever tasted uh, just a few years ago, I don't know, four, four or five years ago, was Blanton's. 
and you, you start, you know, you're like, wait a minute, you started with <laughs> the creme de la creme. And so I wasn't into whiskey. I was living, uh, my best friend, uh, he, he was into whiskey and I didn't, didn't care for it. He said, you should try whiskey. I said, don't, I don't really, don't really want to, it smells bad. And he said, here, try this. And, and he poured me some Blanton's. I took a sip and I went, that is different from anything I've ever had. Mm -hmm. uh, would you pour me some more? And he said, no, the bottle is really expensive. And uh, <laughs> you know, so there you go. That's all you get. Yeah. So uh, we started talking and, uh, and really whiskey is really interesting. Just the manufacturing, the tasty notes, all of it, it is mm -hmm. incredibly interesting. I'm so happy you have your podcast because I'm learning from it. And we've got this cohort of, uh, of, baseball guys that are learning oh. from it. It's really awesome. So this one is, uh, is Blanton's, right? So poured myself a, uh, a little sip here uh, out of the uh, barrel proof baseball uh, Glen Cairn. Oh, there you go. Good represent. And, and this bottle specifically, not just necessarily the production of it, this actual bottle came from Tony Cappuccilli. Oh uh, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the one I picked up here. Picked up there, and nice. not only did you pick it up, but you picked it up when the temperature outside was 125 degrees. Yeah, at least, and it was like 180 in my car. Yes, so Biggest so rookie move I've ever had, by the way. Go ahead. It, it, yeah, hilarious. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it was no big deal, but hilarious. So it's it was so hot that it popped the cork, right? Mm -hmm. And some of the some of the whiskey came out. So I think it's an amazing story on the bottle. Um, just because it is hard to find. You found this at retail, which is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so here it is. Yeah. Cheers, Tony. Yeah, buddy. I'm, well, congrats to you and, and, you know, the pub for the, uh, the glass, but yeah. So I, I, I remember I was at the store and there was like two bottles sitting there and I'm going, yeah, I'm getting those. And I think I'd had like two bottles here. One was open. One wasn't. And I, I picked them up and I think I was bringing other stuff in the car. And I think, at, I think at that point, I think my reason was probably that I had brought enough whiskey into the house recently. And just thinking for marriage purposes, I shouldn't bring more whiskey into the house just yet. And so I was going to wait, I was going to hold off a little bit. Um, didn't even think about it. And I think the next morning I went to go get in the car and I was like, that smells a little, uh, it smells bourbony in this car. And I look back and there's the bag. It's like double bagged sitting in the back seat. And one of them's like laying kind of tilted on its side. And one's like leaning up against it. So I had to wear it. The one that you got, there's only a little bit out of it. It wasn't too bad. Uh, oh. The one that I had for myself was, you know, I lost about a quarter of it and I was fighting. I was fighting every single inkling in my being to not take the liquid that had poured into the bag and drink it out of the bag. Um, I feel like that might've been, a, that might be a low point for me if I had done that. Um, but, but I, I mean, it's I just, this is, this is nectar though, you know, it, it would make sense. But I, yeah, I didn't do it, but yeah, that, that hurt a little bit. Um, but yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you got it. The story will live on. Um, still can't believe I did that though. I'll, I'll never finish this specific bottle. I don't think I'll ever finish it just because uh, I want to keep it and just, it's just a great story on, on like, hey, you know, I got this bottle of Blanton's and I'm just blown away. Wow, this is amazing, you know? And and then the next the next day getting a text, so, hey, so this, the, <laughs> the court <laughs> uh, So here's the thing, uh, yeah. So, so what's, 
Go ahead. What did you start with? What did you start with earlier? Today? Mm. I went with, uh, I started with the Bookers. Now, mm. the Bookers is, hold on. So first Booker, it comes in like a wood box. It's really cool. You can see my little light mm. back there. Um, but yeah, Booker's is, um, they come out a couple times a year. I have not gotten into them because they're kind of tough to find. In, in at the very least, they're tough to find at a reasonable price. Um, <clears throat> this one is the pigskin batch. Um, it's 127 proof, aged just under seven years. Um, Booker No, who's the master distiller from, or was the master distiller for um, Knob, Knob, Knob Creek, um, Jim, Jim Beam. I don't know. I don't drink much Jim Beam. Um, but yeah, he was a master distiller. And, you know, long story short, this is like for, for his, his father, um, Booker No. And then now you've got Little Book that's for the son or, or grandson. Um, so yeah, so they're making their own whiskey and, and this, it's good. I mean, it's a good, it's a good whiskey. They come up with different uh, batches each year. I don't know that much about them. Cause I really haven't got them much. I think the last time I had it was probably like 2013 up in Alaska and we got it for actually way cheaper than it is now. But yeah, so I started with that. It's only the second time I've had a little bit out of this batch, had some on the Super Bowl, um, And then I just switched over to the Breckenridge. Um, their, uh, their founder, Brian Nolt was on the podcast a couple of weeks back. Um, this is the port cask finish. So it's, it's aged in a port wine barrel after the bourbon is done. So yeah, that was a, it's, a, it's way smoother than it's way sweeter at the end than that Booker's. I can assure you that. For the people who haven't heard that podcast, it, it's incredible. Um, he oh, talked a lot about the uh, the water, and, and that was just so incredible hearing that like the snowmelt water, it's first source water. And so we did a, a whiskey tasting. Uh, I did it with some friends here in town uh, over the weekend, and one of the bottles was the Breckenridge. Uh, it was the uh, standard, uh, their standard offering, right? I think you have it in there. This guy there here. it is. There it is. Yeah. And it was incredible. So um, definitely recommend they, they, that. They make a good whiskey. Oh, yeah. They make a really good whiskey. And I'm finding that about like these craft distilleries, um, like Breckenridge, uh, Chattanooga, Penelope, had all three of those guys on. Well, with their founders and for one, they're awesome dudes. And for two, you know, they're, and, and, and Colby Frey, the owner of Frey Ranch, which makes the coolest bottle, by the way. Um, mm. I love these guys. I'm a big fan. Um, mm. the, um, these craft distilleries just, they make a, such a good product. You know, they're, they're mm -hmm. not throwing it out in bulk. I mean, some, I forgot who it was, but they were mentioning that, you know, one of the big distilleries spills more every day than they produce. And it's crazy to think about like the, how massive Jim Beam or, you know, Buffalo Trace is at Wild Turkey. Like they're just gigantic corporations that are turning out so much whiskey. And so these guys with their, the smaller distilleries, I mean, there's a, uh, there's a care factor, not that there's not a care factor with the big distilleries because there absolutely is, but you know, these guys are, uh, it's a small business. And I always, I always equate it to like, a small bat company, you know, where somebody's making their own bats and trying to sell them. And there's a care factor and in in that, that smaller batch that's being put out that doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. always exist with uh, the big, the big businesses that are making tons and tons of them. Absolutely. Yeah. Shout out to uh, Trevor Oaks over at uh, Abo Bats. They do. Uh, so, so Abo does a, uh, 
you know, same idea. It's like craft bats, right? Um, I know dovetail bats does a similar thing mm -hmm. where it's, you're not, these aren't, you know, the player contracts with them, the player still buys the bats, right? For dovetail bats. Like they don't, they don't get free bats because they create such a small amount of bats, but the bats are just of tremendous quality. And, and mm -hmm. so like Trevor does it with Abo. I, and I don't know that many, that many bat makers, but I've worked with him in the past. He's awesome. Uh, look them up. They're Canadian, uh, mm -hmm. Canadian bat maker, really cool story with them. Um, but yeah, so I, I wanted to share our tasting with you. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm trying to remember the lineup. Now, we had Whistlepig tenure, mm -hmm. but it was a, a, a $10, piglet. like, yeah, it was the tiniest little, like, thing, right? Yeah. We, we, they're, they're Piglet. Yes. They're and <laughs> And so now that it, for me it was a little spicy a little bit too much with the rye just for me but mm -hmm. uh, that was a big hit um we had abasolo who was mm -hmm. cody decker's uh favorite right yep. or one of his favorites yeah he's a big fan abasolo is i could sit and and smell abasolo for hours <laughs> just smell it it is it smells amazing it yeah. smells like candy um, the taste on it is, is okay. You know, for me, the, the, uh, what you get after is really good. He was right. He said it's butterscotch. Um, the Breckenridge was a big hit. Um, mm -hmm. we had one in there. I can't, I can't even remember the name and I'm not going to say it because we, we didn't like it so much. You have, you found, have you found yet that you have like a sweet spot in terms of proof that you really like? I have not dove dove. I have not. Dove made the jump Dived. into yeah into high proof so uh this like uh 90 92 proof is just mm -hmm. sort of like where i've been so i haven't made any jumps on that yet because you know i'm just a young padawan here mm. yeah early i yeah the hard part is um like colby Frey at Frey ranch sent me a sample of their barrel proof and it was 132. Um, I would say that that is significantly better than Elijah Craig barrel proof, which if bourbon like enthusiasts watch this, they're going to rip me apart for, um, cause how dare I, but it is significantly better. And it's not like, it's not like kind of better. Like I, I like this one a little bit more. I, I would, I would tell you, like, I would spend way more on that, on the Frey Ranch barrel proof than I would ever spend on Elijah Craig. Like if I had access to the Frey Ranch barrel proof, I would never buy Elijah Craig barrel proof again. Um, it's just so, it's so much better. And I don't know how to explain it other than the fact that it's just, um, it, it tastes more pure. Like you get more flavor out of it versus just being hot from the proof. So I think, and right now, I think there's a lot of proof snobs out there that they just want to drink the highest proof possible and go, Oh, I drink the 190 proof one. Like, cool, man. Like, is it really good? Or are you just trying to show off at this point? Cause sometimes they just get a little hot and you don't get flavors out of them, but mm -hmm. that's just me. Um, yeah, that, I think that like 90 low nineties to like one Oh five is for me, kind of that sweet spot where you're still getting like enough proof below 90 is hard for me because it's not. Like you're just not really getting anything. You're getting it's too like basil Hayden's. I'm anti basil Hayden's. However, you get those ones that are 80, 86 proof. Um, they, they just don't really do anything for me. 
but mm-hmm. 90 plus like that 92 to 105 i, I really like that range yeah, what we had, uh, we had the fray in our lineup, just the, the the standard offering from them, and that is, that is incredible. I I think, um, I was gonna grab another. I need to I need to do that probably today. Gonna grab another bottle of fray because I I think that could be that the next like big thing. I mean, it is so good. As much as some of these craft distilleries are blowing up, like I don't, I haven't, I, I don't know. I really like the Breckenridge. And it's a no knock on anybody because I really like the the Penelope barrel proof was outstanding as well. I mean, I've had a good amount of ones that I've, I thought are outstanding. Um, the Frey Ranch for me right now of the ones that I've been sent, that one's taking the cake. Mm. That's just me. That's so good. I know. And what? The, and the bottle is like the bottle alone is like people are going, "What is that? That is yeah. that's beautiful. It's, a, it's super heavy. It's super yeah. heavy. It's um." It's detailed, you know, it's not, there's nothing about that. That's just not intentional. Um, I really like that. And it's cool because like for him, you know, he's a farmer, like, like he farms Mm. literally the grains that are going into the whiskey. I mean, he's cooler than us and most people (laughs) because, you know, you're going to go and pick that, that hay, or I'm sorry, geez, pick the hay. You're going to go and pick the like wheat or rye, you know, barley or whatever that's going to go into um, you know, the whiskey, and then you're literally watching it going from the ground into a bottle. Like that's incredible. I think that's such a cool thing. Um, Mm. I'm embarrassed that I said, Hey, but that did happen. So we should embrace it. Um, but yeah, like (laughs) I I do, I do, I do think that stuff's really good, but what is your, do you have, do you have a bottle you've either seen, heard of anything that you are like really dying to try out or get? Uh, when we come back to spring training, I think that bottle off your left, that coalition. Oh yeah. I, I I'm, I'm going to need just a, a little, maybe a drop on my tongue on that. Yeah. And I understand, you know, it's a little bit spicier. It's a hundred percent rye. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is something interesting that I would love to try. This one here again, like a lot, like this one, this Breckenridge it's finished in a port barrel, right? Take a port mm-hmm. wine barrel. This is done in a Bordeaux barrel. So it's just, again, not a big wine guy, but it's the, it's so unique. The, the nose on that is so, fr- yeah, you're, you're going to have to try it. I think we're going to have to probably have a tasting one night, maybe two nights even, um, <clears throat> and try some of these out because that one's definitely something that's really unique. It's been a long time coming. You know, we, we've had a year yeah. on zoom, Tony, I think we've, we've earned it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would agree. I think that's a, uh, I think that's definitely accurate, but I think you'd like that coalition. I think that stag junior over there, I just picked up. Um, yeah, we might need to do it when we have an off day the next day to really get to, uh, enjoy what we need to enjoy. I see. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely, uh, get that coordinated. I'm just excited. You know, we got professional baseball, like they're talking about it. It's happening Mm -hmm. on TV. Uh, uh, the, you know, we're, we're having these conversations with players and I'm just so excited to get back. And, um, it was crazy. My first pro, my first like experience, uh, at this thing Uh, across from me, you know, it was like Elian Herrera, uh, and then Charlie Huff was a couple lockers away. Um, and, and I was like looking around and and guys that have like Placido Polanco, who's like coming Mm -hmm. in and out and, I was like, man, this is, this is really cool with the, the big name guys. But then, but then 
not not even just the guys who like played in the major leagues or even played professional baseball, the caliber of people, um, it, it just instantly by osmosis, you like take a little step forward in life. You're like, these are such good people. They've just brought me up a little bit. Um, and that, that's so fun. I can't wait. Can't wait for that again. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready to uh, ready to be back in the locker room, just wearing each other out and just being around being around the guys like being around each other and um that it's just like it's long overdue because even even during instructs i mean we went back and you know like it is what it is you know you have you have the protocols and we're going to continue to have them but we're on a baseball field like you're you put on baseball pants and you're like okay this is this feels right you know like i'm good now so it's definitely uh it's it's that those those days some of those long days that are that are ahead of us here in a month down the road like i don't feel like they're going to be uh, a challenge to get through because i don't know if we're going to want to leave the field no i think we're in for the fastest year of our life because you know when you're yeah. really when you're really having fun with something it just seems to just fly by mm-hmm. and uh this this whole pandemic year it went so slow um and and when we get back, I think we're just going to be so appreciative. I mean, those conversations are going to be on the field, spilling into the locker room, spilling into dinner, you know, spilling into tastings at Tony's house. Yeah, and, I hope so. <laughs> yes. And, and it's just going to be, it's really going to be magical uh, to get yeah. back there. Um, yeah, I'm really excited. Now you, you asked me the question about what, what I'm interested in trying out. I got to hear from you. What, what, uh, What's your bottle that, that you're kind of like looking for, you haven't tried, or maybe you're looking to try again? So my, like my Great White Buffalo would be the Eagle Rare 17 year. Now it's part of the BTAC collection. Um, and so it's going to retail like a little over $100. It's not crazy. I would absolutely, if I ever saw it for $100, $150, I would pay for it and I would never think twice. Um, however, the problem is that you have the bourbon fanboys that when they do get it at retail, they will flip it and sell that $150 bottle at like $700. So, um, that's a tough one, but anything like Eagle rare, like the Eagle rare, the, um, is it the double Eagle rare or Eagle very rare or something like that? Like anything by Eagle rare. I really like them. Um, Elijah Craig 18, which is another one. Like you can find it. Uh, the markup's not like terrible on it, but you can definitely find it. Um, I, I don't like the, the Blanton's gold. I mean, I, I passed on that in 2019, we were in, uh, Munich sitting at a bar in Germany and they had it and I passed on it and I'm an idiot. Um, but yeah, like there's, there's definitely, there's, there's a lot out there that I would love to try. It's just a matter of like, I'm not going to pay that secondary market. You know, there's, there's no way, like there's just a, a um, a uh, raffle with fries. They had one here. The grocery stores had one at total wine. You know, you get your, your standard, like 10 year pappy or, or not pappy or old rip, um, you know, under a hundred dollars while secondary market, you're going to pay 400, you know, $500. So I'm not going to do it because I don't care what you say. It's not that good. And it's not like, it's not $50 to $800 significantly better. So why would I spend that kind of money? But We'll see. Yeah. But the Eagle Rare, the Eagle Rare 17, like that would be my, that would be my go-to. Yeah. Wow. I you've got, you've that. got some, you've got the Weller Special Reserve waiting for you here. Oh, um, I can't wait. 
I got that one. I got, I got a, uh, I got the Jack Daniels barrel, single barrel, barrel proof waiting here for, uh, for Hippolito. He's excited yep. for that one. So I think Jesse, does Guffy have one here too? I just got James bottle. So I'm trying to try to collect bottles and put people's names on it. So Katie doesn't think I'm just collecting more bottles than are, uh, are needed. So. Yeah. We can all vouch for that too. Yeah, exactly. If you, if you need us to, we can always like call just to like leave a voicemail or something like, Hey, just making sure mine. you have, making sure you have my bottle. Uh, yep. that's definitely not your bottle. Yep. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. And, uh, yeah, that might, that might go a long way. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Let, let us know. We, we don't want you to get in trouble or anything I, like that. I appreciate that. Well, listen, yeah. I'm gonna let you run. I, Hey, one more time. This awesome. So excited for you. Um, I hope that they sell out and they have to print more. Um, let's, you know, I'm going to plug it to everybody I know. And, and, uh, and again, congratulations on, uh, on getting it released and following through and getting that done. Cause that's an easy thing to, it's an easy thing to get started and not follow through on it. So the fact that that was something you were able to follow through and, and, uh, it, it truly is an accomplishment. So I applaud you for that. So congrats, dude. Dude. Thank you so much. Cheers Absolutely. to you, man. Cheers, buddy. Thank you. I Thanks appreciate you. All right, buddy. Absolutely. We'll talk soon.